Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 25. And in this week's episode, we had Jim Clemente back on the show. As we've discovered new evidence, our crime scene has changed, and that means that we probably were looking at a different profile. So we brought Jim on the show to go over the new elements of the crime scene, the things that we know, some different changes in victimology, to get his new opinion. And that has led to a whole bunch of listener theories, comments, and questions. And so we're going to get right into those. I'm joined today by Mike Bussing. Hey. And Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. And Zach, as you might have just noticed, and Zach, as you might notice, is uh, under the weather. Actually, I am too. We are both are suffering from pretty bad colds, but we're glad to have him back in the studio. And poor Mike is sitting in this tiny room with the two of us With right the now. germs. Stay away from me, guys. <laughs> right. So we're going to get right into your questions, and today's episode is sponsored by Purell <laughs> Disinfectant to keep you from getting sick. Let's get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. All right. Jared says it seemed that Jim had a difficult time when trying to come up with a reason the body was moved. He tried so many times to rationalize why. Does this make his profile more difficult when there are instances like this during an investigation? Also, I noticed he tried many times to ask if witnesses could have been peering inside the gas station from other windows. Yeah, well, and and the second part had to do with the first part, and it it does make it difficult. And the the big issue is that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. We talked about last week. It's really hard to fathom why someone moved the body like that. And, you know, at some point, I kind of had to pull the plug in the interview because to say, like, look, the, the bottom line is, what we know is that the body was positioned differently. You know how that happened is your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, listening, that's exactly what I took away. Was that he had a really hard time getting past the body movement. Yeah, and understandably so. But it was just you know it, during the conversation it was like at some point it happened. Yeah, it happened. Yeah. So we, we're not going to dwell on that, or we wouldn't, because especially because we were on a tight time frame. Yeah, I actually cut about. 10 minutes out of us continuing to talk about that. That's crazy. Yeah, he seemed like he had a really hard time getting around the fact that the body was moved. Right. And why there was no record of the body being moved. Yeah, and it wasn't so much exactly that. It wasn't so much that the body was moved. It was that everybody's pointing in every direction about who moved the body. Yeah. And so that's why he was asking, you know, could they have seen in from a different direction? And 
after that interview, I I got back into the crime scene photos, the few that we have, and looked, and there really is no other way that you know he, he had said the one picture it looked like the west side of the building was like all glass, mm-hmm. but we I found a picture from the west side of the building that was lit up and like during daylight, and you can't see it at all. I mean that the the pop machine covered most of the glass, the the back half wasn't glass; it was bricks. And then the little bit of space where you could see in through the window, which you'd have to go around the soda machine to get to it, there were shelves in front of the window. So you literally could not see in at all from that side. My thought with the whole thing was, it didn't matter when the body was moved. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, after the police officers got there, it was facing one way. At that point, it doesn't affect the profile. Right. You know, and that's what I wanted to hear was the profile. Right. And and that was, you know, and we got there, and I think the, the reason Jim was so intently making sure he was asking all these questions is to 100% verify that we have accurate information. That the body was facing the way it was. Yeah. You know, so he was, he, what he was doing was going through, is it possible that we're wrong about this? And he wanted, some of the stuff that was, cu- that was cut out was him talking about, well, how did he word it? Are we sure? When he said he saw his feet, what did he really, you know, is there, is there, could he have meant that? And, and with Pilo, you know, could he have been, Coming from this way, and and you know, and ultimately, like I said, the you know, there's no way you could see in from the west and from the north. Also, uh, with the, with the height of not only well, where the glass started, but the height of the counter behind it, and the, even if someone was like six foot five and standing right against the window, you still couldn't see back behind where he was at. So, literally, the only place that you could have looked in and seen Bill's head or feet would have been right through the front window which it through the front door which is exactly what pilo described i mean he approached from the southeast and then he said i looked through the glass front door and that's what i saw and then Jeannie luna also said she looked through the front door and that's what she saw so but but that was yeah i mean it went on a little bit longer than i would have really liked it to to be honest with you the discussion about the bodies but 100 percent this this episode was a little different too typically when jim comes on we we have a pre-interview to work out those kinds of details, and those and then we come back on and then record like a, a clean interview. And every time we do that, I always say, "And we I should have just recorded." To me, that's the the how the sausage is made. You know how we got there is interesting to listen to in a lot of our mm-hmm. conversations. So so you were hearing not. I mean, I I sent him. Crime scene diagrams and photos, and you know how things kind of changed with our timeline since the last time we talked. So we did some research, but then he was he was learning the the scene and doing his analysis on the fly with me in this episode. All right, this next one's from Kara. If the Jeffs are responsible for Bill's murder, this would have been one of their first robberies in a string of robberies, right? If something went horribly wrong and someone got shot in their first attempt, wouldn't they continue to commit armed robberies with the same mo? I would think getting $90 and killing someone would deter them from committing the same type of crime, or at the very least cause them to change the way they go about the robberies. Also, it's my understanding that violent criminals usually become more and more violent as their crimes continue. However, all the other robberies that Jeffs were involved in were nonviolent. Well, for starters, we only know of three of them. That doesn't mean that was all of the robberies they were involved in. As far as violent criminals kind of escalating or evolving into becoming more violent. It's my opinion, I think Jim's with the profile is that these are not violent criminals. It was never the intention to shoot anyone. Um, so you have to understand that, that, that the shooting was a mistake. Now, let's say it was the Jeffs. Of course, we don't know. Um, but if, if we're looking at what Martinez saw and what the Luna boy saw from across the street, which they couldn't see much, but I think they could see if the person was wearing a mask. What we see with the three August armed robberies is they were wearing masks there. So that could have been part of the, you know, them them evolving and changing their strategy is, oh, shit, after that, we better wear a mask. Now, as, as far as being a deterrent, it all depends on, again, that this helps point us back towards the behavior of our unsub. If it was the same person, you know, what was their motivation for being there to begin with? You, know, you heard Jim say that, you know, he, he thinks the profile would be someone who is not terribly criminally sophisticated and immature, not young, but immature. And so if, say somebody is, has a, a bad drug habit, which can lower your maturity level, uh, as he said, in, in the, the robberies are, are literally done out of desperation. That's the way they're, they're getting money to feed their habit. 
in that case, it's very unlikely that they're going to stop. They may change things up to try to protect themselves a little more, but it's an impulse decision to do something like this. And if we think the Jeffs are part of it, you know, maybe they felt like they got away with it. Right. Because they were questioned and they were turned off saying, nope, these weren't the guys. They didn't fit the description. Right. So they're like, oh, shit, we got away with this. Well, and to make clear the timeline, Jeff Miller's wife told police that he was involved in November after they had already been caught for the other okay. three. Just so we're clear on that. Okay. So they weren't questioned prior to that. Okay. Then I screwed that up. But as far as the other part of Kara's question, if this was the if Bill's murder would have been the first in a string of robberies, I don't think that's accurate either. The, the the armed robberies around Bloomington were going on prior to this, and and continued after it. And then remember, go back to what our tipster said. Prior to Bill's murder, early spring of that year, Jeff Durbin was bragging that he was using his cab for all these armed robberies as a getaway car. So Durbin and Miller never got caught for any other armed robberies prior to Bill's murder or afterwards until August. But according to our tipster, they were committing, or at least Durbin was committing other armed robberies at the time. And we know there was a string, strings of armed robberies going on in the Bloomington area at that time. So I don't, I don't think this was their first. I think they were doing it, regardless of they, if they were the ones who killed Bill, I think they were involved in a lot of these armed robberies before, during, and after uh, Bill's death. And I think, you know, the, the taxi cab, I think things ramped up in February when Wiley Holt finally got his taxi cab business off the ground and Durbin started driving for him because, again, according to our tipster, that was the perfect getaway car. It made things easier because he could alter his logbooks. All right, Liz says, had Bill ever pushed the silent alarm before? Also, could he have known how fast the police would get there because of Jeannie Luna? To my knowledge, no. Actually, no. I'm sure he's never put, pressed it before. Um, he could have from Jeannie, but you know it just, it just depends because, because back in December she pressed the alarm. But even even with that, you, you don't know where the officer is. You know, the officer could be across the street when the alarm is pressed, and they're there right away. Or it could be daylight. It could be a, you know a time. You know, it's Easter. I'm sure staffing was low. You know, most emergency services will try to keep staffing as low as possible because people are using vacation time and stuff for Easter. And most emergency services have, like a, like at the fire department, we always had a minimum staffing. So we had four people on shift at a station at a time, but we had a minimum staffing of two. So like if a couple people called in sick, then we would roll with only two people for a shift before they would call in overtime. Um, so things could have been different. Uh, I have no way of knowing if he could have known the very specifics from Jeannie. All right. Sandy says, could Jim's opinion of the perp being immature equate to someone who was, quote, not very bright, but any age? From the stories of Miller's other escapades, he sounds like an empty head. Also, were there any similarities between the Gina Luna holdup and this one? Yeah, I think that being very not very bright, it could show his immaturity, but also immaturity could cause you to come across as not very bright. If that makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so you know it, what, what I what I see with the immature, the things that indicate immaturity are making bad risk benefit decisions not really taking into account the risks you're taking for the actions you're taking. It's really a lot to do with impulsivity where someone might think, Hey man, I could rob that gas station. I could walk away with a hundred bucks, but that's not worth, not worth going to jail for. But someone that has some severe impulse control is like, screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. And, and that's a very immature thing to do, but it doesn't necessarily mean young. And also I I think it drug use as far as the, Jeff Miller, for example, goes, and this is where Jim and I are actually going to talk about this on in this Sunday's episode. But we know that he was a drug addict and he had problems. And one of the things we found from newspaper articles, listeners have found, he was he was huffing glue. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was actually caught stealing model glue from a hobby a hobby store, and was caught because he was getting high on the glue that he was huffing, and that is. Is is it actually? It's not like a lot of other intoxicating substances that might impair you for a period of time, but then the effects of that go away. You know, for like alcohol is going to leave a lasting effect on your liver, but as far as your brain, once the alcohol is out of your system, your brain goes back to normal. With huffing glue, it's literally. I mean, it's 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 you get dumber every time you do it. It's killing your brain cells while you're doing it. So, you know, I think that explains at least in the cases where we know he was involved why he was doing some really stupid stuff like walking past a van 
with people whose house you just left inside of it with no mask on, robbing the gas station, and then running away with a Halloween mask on so impulsively that you almost get hit by two cars while you're running across the street, you know, that that is obviously lack of restraint, lack of sophistication, lack of intelligence, and certainly lack of impulse control. Yeah, it sounds like he could have been intoxicated at the time of the robbery. Very well could have been, or jonesing for his next fix. And as far as the similarities between the Gina Luna holdup and this one, I don't, honestly, I don't have a lot. It's something I should I should ask Jeannie about because I don't exactly know the circumstances in that one, other than I know that she did, they did get robbed and she did hit the silent alarm. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Jerry says you brought up a scenario of it being possible that a crackhead did this robbery. All I hear from people that think Jamie is guilty is that he was an addict. And that's why he has the arrest history that he does. My question is, was Jamie ever addicted to drugs? I think so. I mean, I... I know he did some drugs when he was younger. There was a time when I don't know if I want to say that he was he was an addict or he was just an avid user. Depends on who you talk to. But what seems to be pretty consistent from everybody that knows him, including his ex-wife, and remember we talked to Denny Hendricks and other people that knew Jamie around the time. By the time this rolled around, after he got out of jail prior to this from years before. Uh, in the eighties that he had, he had knocked that off. You know, people, everybody said he didn't, he wasn't a partier anymore. He didn't go to the bars and drink really hardly ever. If he did, he had his wife with him. He wasn't doing drugs anymore. So that, but again, that's all hearsay, but that's, that's what everyone I've spoken to that knew him at that time has told me. And what he has told me that, you know, by 1991, you know, whatever his involvement with drugs was that he had, he had moved on from that. Jordan says, do we know Bill's typical drop rate and amount into the safe? $60 seems like a very small amount to make the effort for. Do we know if that drop was made near the time that he called Danny's cousin? That may help pinpoint a time that he began to get nervous. He seems like a stand-up guy that would protect the store. So, for example, if he saw someone milling about at length repeatedly, inside or in the lot, would he drop the $60 when that person could not see him? So, uh, according to... Chuck, I think his name was, the the other Clark gas station attendant, he had told us that the standard amount when they wanted you to drop was actually $60. Whenever you got the till over that amount where you had $60 more than you were supposed to keep in the drawer, you were supposed to drop it. Because remember, he was talking about how sometimes you'd get a rush and you couldn't drop it. And there was, you know, a bunch of people would come in and real quick, there's five, $600 in there. And you got to find time to, to get that money out of there and, and make the drop. But my understanding is that $60 was a normal drop. In regards to how close in time that was to when he called Danny's cousin, depending on, on how accurate her time is, you know, she seemed to think it was around 8. I think the evidence indicates it probably was around 8 because obviously it was after, as I explained last week or two weeks ago, obviously it was after Danny left and before he was robbed. So that's in that 8 o'clock window. And the cash, the cash dump was made just a few minutes before 8 o'clock. So it would have been right there in that window, either either before or after. I mean, I guess it could have been during, but it seems unlikely he would call her and then start doing a safe dump. All right, this one's from Michelle. Just a thought about the scuffle hypothesis. If a scuffle did occur between the unsub and Bill, it would have to have happened before the unsub grabbed the register insert. Otherwise, it's likely that the unsub would have spilled the change out of the insert. Unsub goes to get behind the counter, Bill trips alarm, scuffle occurs, 
Bill and Unsub switch places with Bill closer to the storage room and Unsub near the register. Unsub collects the insert. Bill says that the cops are on the way and tries to talk Unsub down. And Unsub sees Martinez and or Pilo and shoots Bill to get out. What do you think of the theory? It's possible, but there's, there's a lot of unknowns there that we just really can't make a clear determination on. And, you know, one of the things is timing. As I mentioned, you know, we don't really know. It seems that through the police reports, there was actually somebody from the Illinois State Police that, like, created the time, like a timeline, put time into looking at the register and the alarm to create the official timeline. So it seems as though it was verified that that this, the register time was accurate, but we don't know that for sure. And so, so some the timing of things could be shifted around a little bit. We also, so if we're looking, we we now we we can't bend things to fit with the Jeffs. That's not how this works. That's how people get wrongfully convicted. So, it, but if we're looking at the Jeffs mo and see how it could compare to this, in both instances, I believe that we we have from their other armed robberies, Miller seemed to always carry a black backpack. I think there were two different people that had described that he would carry a black backpack. And so, you know, we've we've talked about him carrying the register. Was it like a pizza or how, however he was doing it? But it's it's potential. I need to go back now that I'm thinking about it. I need to go back and review Martinez's statement because I believe it was, I believe Martinez said he had his hands in his pockets like he was carrying something. Mm-hmm. And the Luna boys said that they saw something under his arm, right? Well, and they said it looked like a cash register insert. Which was ridiculous from being right. 220 feet away at night. But I could see a backpack under his arm. Yeah, exactly right. That's what I'm getting at. So it could have been he just took the insert and dumped the whole thing into his backpack. Which would make up for all the change being missing. Right. And not being spilled all over the place. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, I don't want to bend evidence to fit, you know, a theory. But, you know, we, we've been trying to theorize for months now how did they take an insert that's full of change? carry it out, and not spill change everywhere. And, I, and we talked about it could have been in a bag of some kind. Well, And you have you, you do have the Jeff, uh, Jeff Miller that was known in the other instances to carry a backpack with him to put stuff in. And I, I wish we could get, you know, everything's redacted. We can't find who the victims were in those other cases so far. If anybody is listening and coming forward, if you were the victims in the mobile station or the Econolage or the, the other Clark station, I would love to hear from one of Jeff Miller or more of Jeff Miller's victims to find out if he took the inserts in those cases, because with the limited police reports we have, we just, we don't know if he took them. But I think, I think a backpack would change everything because if you, if you dump the, the, the till into a backpack, then it doesn't really matter. You know, it's not like he's trying not to spill change. Anna says, where was the safe located in the store? Yeah. So it was behind the counter. It would be in the Northwest corner of the store part of the building so not in the storeroom but so if you walked in the door and the counters on your left and then you turned to the left to look to the west over the counter where the attendant was it would be behind him and to the right so just kind of if you, if you go on the fan page and look at the diagrams we have it's in the the back the northwest corner is where Jeannie luna told me that it was it was located back then you can kind of see it in some of the crime scene photos Mike says, if the time on the register, alarm, and police dispatch weren't compared, how are you confident in the times? The only one that can be trusted as accurate is the police dispatch time. All these events could have happened in a much more compressed time frame, meaning there wasn't a five-minute standoff between Bill and the perp. Yeah, so I'm not super confident in the time. Again, we don't know if the police did anything to confirm or line up times. We know there was someone with the state police that took the time to build the timeline. So I would hope that they would, they would verify those times. But, but my thing is, even if they did that, there still could be a difference because it, because it could be seconds, right? It's, it's potential for the, the minute times to be accurate. And when there's an 815 and an 816, for those to be two minutes apart or one second apart or Flip flop with just a few seconds, and that's the thing that that would make the biggest difference. Obviously, I, I think there 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 surely was a gap in time. We know there was a gap in time from the time Bill pressed the alarm, because we know how long it took Pilo to get there before he before he was killed. And if we look at you know what Pilo saw and what Martinez said, you know it seems like he was shot most likely right as 
Pila was arriving on the scene. So, so we know there was a gap at least between when the alarm was pressed and not. But it's not unreasonable to consider that the alarm might have been pressed before the drawer was opened. You know, we don't have any evidence indicating that, but I think given the proximity of the time and the fact that we're dealing with two different timekeeping devices, I think it's possible that if 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 they're just not synced up within 60 seconds of each other, they could be reversed. And I don't know that that makes a huge difference in our profile, but it's definitely an unknown that we have to make clear is out there. Well, you have the timestamp of the alarm, mm-hmm. and we know what time that was, and we know what time Pilo got there. Right. And that's five minutes. Right. And those times are by the police. That's not using the register at all. Right. So, I mean, that's you know that's five minutes. Yeah. Yeah, between the 816 alarm and 821 arrival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, but the question is, when was the register open last? You know, so, so if it's off by four minutes, it, you know, then it, it could mean Bill pressed the alarm and then it was until four minutes later that the guy actually opened the drawer and then he shot him and left. But they just, it just, well, there would that, still be a standoff. Right. It, regardless exactly. of that, regardless of that time frame, there would still be a standoff because even if it was four minutes off, he still pressed the alarm four minutes earlier. Right. Before something happened. Yeah. So you're exactly right. So I don't think it really changes the profile much because in either case, there, he's hanging, the, the, the unsub is hanging around one way or another to, before he leaves and mm-hmm. sh- shoots Bill and leaves. So there, there, you would assume there's some sort of argument happening there if it was flip flop like that because Bill pressed the alarm before. But I, I don't think that. I, I, I'm sure, not sure, I would say my, my opinion is that. The times were checked for accuracy, but again, it just depends on how. And, and to, to be very clear, and maybe I'm beating a dead horse, but but what I'm what I mean here is, you could look at your watch and go. So look at the register and look at the register time, and the and say you're testing it the next day. Well, the register says it's twelve o five, and you look at your watch and it's twelve o five. Okay, it it's on, mm-hmm. but it could have been that the register had flipped to to twelve o five in the second before you looked at it and your watch was at 1205 and 59 seconds. And then, so the time could be off by almost two minutes. Right. A 60 second swing either way. Exactly right. Yeah. And so that's all I'm saying is that the, you know, that could be off like that. And the same thing with the alarm company, because we don't have seconds. We only have minutes. So if you, if you take in a, a two minute margin of error or a one minute margin of error, like Mike said, one minute each direction, for both those devices, then there's a little bit of a room for, for some play there. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jessica says, does anyone else find it odd that Bill's wallet was still in his pocket? Once the unsub realized the register had less than $100, I would think he'd ask for Bill's wallet. It's odd, but I think it also is, it's telling us something. You know what I mean? And, and, and originally, I thought maybe that's telling us that money wasn't the real motivation. You know, when, when we were, especially when we were still thinking Bill was behind the counter and the unsub was on the other side, you couple it with all that evidence, like, why is this guy hanging around? Why isn't he leaving after he has the money? Bill's still got money in his pocket. Must be a personal issue. But now if you put Bill outside the counter and, and if you if you at least consider the possibility that Bill was blocking the egress, that there's some sort of scuffle, then it doesn't seem as odd to me that he still has his wallet. Hell, that could have been the, the contributing factor to Bill fighting. Yeah, maybe he asked for his wallet. Bill's right. like, I'm not giving you my wallet. Yeah, you know, he like he's like, fine, take the register, take the money, just get out of here. Mm-hmm. This is enough money, you know, give me your wallet. And now he's like, no, I'm not giving you my money. Like now, now, now I'll mm-hmm. fight for my money. I'm not gonna, but but not that you know that not that that happened, but it's a possibility, you know. And and if we look at the fact of the body position that that again, I keep saying seems to indicate and possibility because I can't say with a hundred percent surety that. This is the scenario where Bill was outside the counter. There's there's too many variables in there where he could have walked, moved, crawled, whatever it was. But it seems the most likely scenario that he was outside the counter. And, and so knowing that, you know that there there was some sort of 
Bill was standing his ground in one way or another. Whether that means he was trying to stall the guy verbally or he was trying to physically, maybe he was trying to wrestle the gun away from him, you know, whatever it was. You know, and that's another thing we, we talked about. Why would he fight a guy when the guy's got a gun? It's like, well, maybe there was that moment where they're, they're, they're in that, that kind of pinch point there behind the counter where they're real, real close quarters. And Bill saw an opportunity where he could grab the gun. You know, and so that's how the fight. It didn't. He didn't. He didn't fight with a gun pointed at him. He decided to make a move when he saw an opportunity, and the fight happened. And then it breaks up. And when it breaks up, Bill's between him and the door. Boom. What are, What are the chances that the shot was at just uber close range? I don't know. According to the ME, not that that, that can't be the case because they said there was no sooter stippling, which indicates that the muzzle of the barrel was at least three feet away. Oh yeah, okay. But that's still close. Right. You know, that's that's me right here to Zach. You know, that, that that's still very close. But it, it doesn't really say that I recall, and it's another thing I guess I need to review, but what's bothered me since day one with that is Bill was wearing two shirts. He had an undershirt on and a button-up shirt over it, and Williams cut those shirts open to work him. And so is the ME say, looking at his skin and saying there's no stippling and no soot? Or is he looking at, but or did he look at the clothing? Because I would expect maybe one shirt, you know, you've shot, you know, hot gunpowder. It'll burn through stuff. Yeah. But would it burn all the way through two shirts? Certainly no soot, but maybe yeah. some stippling if it was close. Maybe. You know, so I, I'm not super comfortable saying that he was at least three feet away because I, I, I haven't seen that the clothes were closely examined. And I think that's something that that when we... Pass this back to Jamie's attorneys, which is going to be coming up soon here, that needs to be looked at. Is, is, is it possible that the shooter was closer? You know, the other thing that could create space between Bill and the perp, which I just thought about, is that the perp tried to leave out the back and is in the, actually shooting from the storage room right back out that way. Behind the counter, there's only four feet. Right. But if he's in that storage room and Bill's there... At that opening, mm-hmm. you're you're creating more space, right? And that's part of what Jim and I were talking about, kind of at the end. That you know, we've kind of haven't thought much about the storage room, but that mm-hmm. was that either he's back there. There are a few different re- ways that the unsub could end up in the storage room. It could be that he was saw the cops and said, "Shit, I'm going to go out the back door," mm-hmm. and ran back there and found out there was no back door, which is surprising to me. I thought, you know, as a business owner myself, we have a back door, and I thought that was a requirement to have a secondary escape. You would think. You know, at first fire, I mean, for what you did, you know. Right. I thought you had to have a secondary escape route. Right. It's not like there's anything flammable at the gas station. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's my thought process is, is the perp might have thought that too. Right. That there's a back door. Because I would most think there places, would be. There has to be a back door. And it makes so much sense that if the unsub did see the cops coming from across the street, mm-hmm. that they would try to get out the back door. Well, even if he, if he didn't see the cops coming... If you just committed a murder, you, right. you, you, you would probably, uh, like, just second nature, want to go out a, a different door. Right. Well, and also, you have Martinez outside, even if you saw that, if there was a customer. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to go out the, the front door. And the, the building is very deceiving. Because if you look, look at the crime scene photos, it's a big building. It's very long and deep. Mike, well, we didn't see that actual building there, but we compared it and walked it off when we were on the crime scene. But from the front, you may not, you wouldn't realize that the Clark Station was only about 16 feet of that building. Okay. And then the rest of it was like a body shop that was in the back that you came in from the other end, from the alley. Okay. And from the side. So because of that, I could totally see somebody thinking there must be another way out because of this big building. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's one possibility is that they try to get out that way. Another possibility is that a, a literal scuffle over the gun result in as he's trying to get away they just happen to split that direction yeah. you know where he kind of falls into the storeroom and bill's standing and again that puts bill in both scenarios between him and the only exit and then the other possibility is that he went back there to try to find something else valuable you know like he's he's just going to see if there's a if there's anything uh, any other money yeah back there he can get to and in any one of those three scenarios it puts the unsub back in the storeroom and then it makes a lot of sense for Bill then to be at the end of the counter, which in that doorway, which is right between him and the exit, which, like Zach said, could could account for more space between the muzzle of the gun and Bill. 
because the storeroom was a little bigger. Isn't that a fire code, though? Yes. Okay. It, it is. And uh, I don't know how they got away with that. I, mean, I guess a different local code. Well, the, the, I'm trying to think. I know that's totally way off. doesn't matter well, about anything. But I, but I thought that from the beginning. I'm like, how is there not an extra? There, there for sure has to be two ways out of any room where people are sleeping. But usually you have to have at least two exit for any commercial building. Yeah. Doesn't have to be front and back, but usually there has to be at least yeah, two. Yeah, two. It doesn't, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Illinois codes or they just had a code enforcement officer that didn't care. Joe has two questions. First question, does the position matter so much? Even if he died in seconds, he could have taken a step or two. So like I said before, there, there are definitely other possibilities. And yes, Bill could have moved after he was shot. Probably did actually move a little bit after he was shot. Could have taken a couple steps. But when we take his body position and we add in the bullet trajectories, those two things together are what lead me to believe that he was outside the counter when he was shot. And I say that because, again, the first shot was straight on. Well, what I'm assuming was the first shot, but it makes the most sense. You're standing straight up, straight on. And the second shot came in at a very extreme downward angle, which means either the unsub was shooting from above him or Bill was hunched over when he was shot like that, which makes sense. So when you take the fact, which, which my theory is that, that he was shot standing up, he hunched over, could have been all the way down to his knees or could have just hunched over. I believe he was down on his knees after the first shot and hunched. And the second shot comes in from that downward angle. That space is too tight that if he had, if he had went down after that first shot, even though he's moving, and his head is pointed to the west, even if he starts crawling, the space is too confined for him to have turned around. So imagine that. So imagine he's behind the counter, and he gets shot, bang, drops, bang, another shot comes in from above like that. He's on the ground facing, you know, towards out of the counter. And then in order for, for him to get end up in the position he's in, it would mean that he crawled from behind the counter all the way around the end you would have to get past the end of the counter in order to have enough space to then turn back, instead of continuing out the front door, to turn back around and head back the other direction, back towards the counter, and then finally pass away there. Like To me, just his body position doesn't tell us enough. Somebody gets shot, they can take four or five steps, they can take ten, I mean, you could be shot, and we've said immediately, but but immediately doesn't mean, he wasn't like bang like on TV's dead. Surely there was some movement that went on after that, at least at least some even involuntary movement, uh, but that can walk around. But when you add in the bullet trajectory, and, and, and it seems to be very evident that he was hunched over leaning forward when the second shot came in, and I believe that, that because of the trajectory, most likely, not for sure, but most likely he was on his knees when the second shot came in, I just don't see a plausible scenario where he was behind the counter when that happened and he ended up in the position he was in. I'm not saying that's not a possible scenario, but certainly not the most plausible. What if he was hunched over, over the counter and got shot? What if the first shot was the off-center one and then the second shot was the guy standing above him and executing him? But in that scenario, so exactly like you said, so he's hunched over the leaning towards him over the counter, which is an odd posture when somebody's got a gun pointed at you. Most people don't put their head closer, but it's possible. So bang, the first shot, he's already in that weird angle. He falls back and the second shot comes straight on. In that scenario, he's still behind the counter. So, so in, in that way, you'd have to say that he stayed on his feet and walked around the counter, out past it, and then turned around and fell back. I hadn't thought of another scenario where that shot could have been first. That is a possible scenario, but again, I still think it's unlikely. It seems very, very unlikely that someone would lean into a person with a gun to begin with. And you got the tight quarters there too, because behind that counter, there's only like two feet, you know, for yeah. two, three feet for somebody to stand. And there's a the soda machine right behind them. I don't think you could get far enough away for the muzzle to be three feet away from them. It's just hard for me to get around the fact that the first shot was so perfect. And the second shot was not. Not really perfect. It's just, you know, if, I, I, I guarantee you just about anybody, if I had an airsoft gun right now with Zach at that distance without even thinking about it, and I go, bam, and just shoot center body mass, that's that shot. You know, it's, it's, it's not like he aimed and thought, I want to I pierce 
the right atria and the left ventricle with his shot. He just shot him in the chest. You know, so it, I, I don't think there's anything perfect. I mean, it was, it, you're right, it was a perfect shot, but it doesn't mean, necessarily mean it was a precision shot. You know, and the heart isn't located where people think it is. You know what I mean? People think the heart is, is way off center. It's not. It's actually much more centered. You know, it, it's not far off to the left like people assume. It's actually much more centered. Right. Which, you know, you're just aiming center mass. Yeah. And it's actually, it, it actually is in the center. The reason people put it to the left is because the left ventricle is the largest chamber. And so it's, your heart's lopsided mm-hmm. to the left. It's not positioned to the left. Joe's next thought is, I think we're putting too much stock into Martinez to pin the shooting at 821. When exactly were his statements taken? He seems highly suggestible and may have thought, of course, I must have heard something when told there was a shooting. Maybe he heard something else, maybe even a car backfiring. It just gets me that he would walk toward it, then away from it to check his car in case it backfired. Right. Well, yeah, I think to answer the first question, he was interviewed that night. And, and, and really, that's what I'm looking at. We have so many statements from Martinez. So what I'm looking at is before there were any suspects, before anybody may have tried to influence him, what did he say happened that night? And uh, to be honest with you, I think that I thought my car, because what it was is he said he heard while he was filling his tire, he heard two bangs that he thought were his car, that he thought was his car backfiring. But obviously, it got his attention. He, he knew something wasn't right. Because based on how he described his actions after that and how Pilo described his actions, he was co- probably confused and scared. So th- this is, again, I'm, I'm giving a lot of theories and hypotheses now, but that's, so this is n- not fact. But what I think happened is he heard those shots, didn't know what it was, and he's like, shit, what was that? Could that have been something in the store? Takes two steps for the store, takes two steps towards the store, and then sees the guy come out and is like, oh, shit. And backs and turns away, and then is like, "Well, should I help?" Like I, and you know, the, you can imagine yourself in that scenario. I think that's much more plausible, and I think that's the best that it's been explained because I think too many people are thinking that it's like he took four or five steps, turned around, took four or five steps, turned around, took four or five steps. No, I think it's a scared shuffle. I don't yeah. think it was this big back and forth like people are making it sound. Yeah, I've always pictured it as a as a yeah a nervous. What do I do? Like, do mm-hmm. I go? Oh shit! There's a person. Do I? I'm just going to get the hell out of here. Yeah, is what I'm going to do now. And so that you know, and I, and I think that as, as Jim said in the first time we had him on, you know, the oh, but I turned back towards my car because I thought my car was going to die. I think is probably most likely not wanting to say I was scared of the man that was coming out of the store. You know, so I have another reason for doing that. But 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 you know, there, I, we're not putting a lot into. Martinez, just like any witness statements, I'm looking at what are things that can be corroborated and that make sense and, and fit the the crime scene as we know it. And, and in his case, he says, I was putting air in the tires. Forget that he heard bangs, but he's putting the air, air in the tires. Something triggered him to get up, walk towards the store. He says he saw in his original statement, he doesn't say close by, but he says in, a, in the original one, he says he saw the guy come out, walk around. He turned back towards his car. And I think there might have been two or you know two times or whatever, but that's you know again your your memory even hours later your memory about exactly how many steps you took and all that stuff aren't going to make sense. So I'm looking at he was there, he heard something most likely was gunshots because he did see somebody flee the store. I believe he I believe and there's people that don't, but I believe he saw someone leave the store and for a brief time. And as far as his description, you know the as far as like the details of the face, I don't think we can put any weight into that. But as far as I saw a man that was about this high walk out, look like he was carrying something, went around the corner. I think that happened. And then, and then you take you take Pilo, who says, you know, I, I, sh- I showed up and saw a guy putting air in his tires, saw him get up, walk towards the store, back towards his car, towards the store, back towards his car, then he gets in his car and he leaves. So you know, the, the, he's corroborating what so, – so what I'm saying is we can timestamp at least when Martinez did that. And it's during him doing that that – he saw the person leave the, leave the gas station. And, and no one else has ever come forward that anybody else was in the gas station after Bill was shot. So what I'm saying is that like, him hearing those two backfires almost had to be the two shots. Because the other scenario is, the and only other possibility is that Bill was shot, what, five minutes earlier, and that guy left, and then someone else went into the store, and then Martinez just happened to think he heard something, and then see that guy leave which is unlikely to me. 
Leslie says, you told Jim Clemente that Pilo described everything that Danny Martinez did except for the suspect. That is just not true. Danny Martinez did not talk to Pilo until he was back at his house through his fence, and radio dispatch calls verify that, since he describes Martinez leaving while he crosses Empire. Martinez never mentioned he saw anybody until he was in his driveway with the scene secured, talking over his fence. Williams saw Pilo walking into the Clark Station lot from Empire and says he had an unobstructed view of the front door, and the timing of that wasn't rehashed either. It doesn't seem like a solid crime scene profile can be made with those looming inconsistencies. You have to pick up and choose certain things in order to make it all fit. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess I'm not exactly sure what the point is with that. So what I just described about Martinez is what I meant by they saw this, that Pilo saw the same, same thing as Martinez. I'm not saying that Martinez told Pilo this is what happened. I don't care what Pilo told him what happened. My point is exactly what I just spent whatever a couple minutes explaining, which is that Martinez has a story, the part that is critical to our investigation, the part that's critical to reconstructing the crime scene and the timeline, that he was down on his knees putting air in his tire, heard two bangs, got up, turned towards the store, started to walk back towards the store, saw the guy in that in those seconds walk, or walk out of the store and around the corner. Those are our critical moments to fi- figure out when the, uh, when the shots were and when the unsub left. So then we go to Pilo, who says as he's approaching on foot, he sees a Hispanic male crouch down, putting air in his tires, sees him get up, walk one way, back the other, back the other, the back and forth shuffle, as we've called it. So that that's all I meant by the, you know, Pilo saw the same thing that Martinez described. I'm not saying that I didn't mean what Martinez described to Pilo. I'm saying what his initial witness statements described that he was doing when he heard the bangs and when he saw the unsub leave the gas station. Pilo described him doing exactly those motions. That's also what he saw when he was approaching the scene. And we know the timestamp there was at 821 when he got to the scene. So that, so I'm not real clear on, on what she means by it's not true that what, what I was saying that Pilo witnessed Martinez doing exactly what Martinez described that he was doing. But, that, but if it wasn't clear, that's what I meant by that. And as far as Williams, he, he doesn't affect that timeline at all based on my interpretation and what you just said, which is that he pulled up and saw Pilo walking into the front door and had a clear view of the front door. That right there tells me that Williams wasn't there yet when the unsub was leaving because the unsub was leaving, according to Martinez, saw him during the back-and-forth shuffle. During the back-and-forth shuffle, Pilo is still all the way across the street when he saw that, and that took three, four seconds for the unsub to leave, turn the corner, and he's gone. And so after that happens, Pilo crosses the street, approaches, talks to the, tells the people, that, the other people that pulled into the gas station, tells them to leave, and then gets to the front door, and then looks in and sees Bill's feet, and that's when Williams pulls up and sees Pilo entering the store. So you see, in that timeline, Williams doesn't play. I mean, Williams is important. His timing is important. But as far as what we're trying to do to reconstruct the timeline of events of the actual crime itself, all evidence indicates that Bill was shot right around 820, 821, and that he fled the scene right in that same minute based on Martinez's statement and then Pilo's corroboration of the parts of his statement that are relevant to the timing. And so for Williams not to show up until he was seeing Pilo enter the, enter the front door, it's too late. Even, I mean, he could have showed up. Uh, 30 seconds before that, which is a long time to sit and stare at something, and it still wouldn't have mattered because the person was gone. If we, if, we, if we believe Martinez's story and Pilo's story, the unsub was around the corner and gone before Pilo ever crossed the street. He was already gone. So if Williams pulled up any time past that moment, there's no chance for him to have seen the unsub. And even Pilo, Jim, caught something in a crime scene photo that I had never noticed. One of the crime scene photos, as he said, that we had was taken from Pilo's point of view from across the street. It's a shot of 
the front of the station from where about where Pila was standing. And sure enough, there's a gas pump. So you're only dealing with 10 feet, 15 feet where the unsub was, was in front of the store. And in that, right in the smack in the middle of that is a gas pump that would have obstructed the view, which gives you even more time for less time for, for Pilo to have been able to see the unsub moving because for probably half of that path of travel, his, his view would have been blocked. All right. That's going to do it for this week's follow-up. Thanks everybody for your thoughts and theories. Yep. Thanks everybody. And thanks Mike and Zach for joining us and make sure you tune in on Sunday. Jim's back and we have a nice long conversation about how the Jeffs fit into his profile. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. By the way, did you guys like the job? My my son, we've hired my son Quentin to do all our video editing now because I don't have time for it, and seems to be doing a pretty bang up job. Nice. Not that I've watched his videos to find out, but he's going to ruin us. Yeah, he's in all honesty, there's going to be something we're going to say that needs to be cut out. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, he doesn't know. He's a kid, and he's going to and, and he's going to put like sparkles yeah, right, on it or right. something. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Right. That's yeah. such a good we, thing going. We had a good run. <laughs> <laughs>